Bodhi Cristo, I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Bodhi Cristo is uh, the path. I have, I've termed it such um, simply because in the years that I've been a monk and the years that I've been um, doing this work and this meditative uh, practice, I've discovered that both Jesus and the Buddha, um, had they uh, existed at the same time, uh, they would have probably gotten along very well. Um, and I think that is because Jesus is often referred to as the son of God, but there's, there's something else he's often called, and that is the son of man. I think it is the man side, the human side of Jesus that we are so undereducated in as a human society, that we are so undereducated in and misinformed about as a Christian society, that it warrants us investigating simply because uh, without understanding his human side, I don't believe that we will ever understand his divine side. Well, hello there. How are you doing? I'm Seth. This is Can I Say This at Church podcast. And I think April is done. This is episode... 127, maybe 128, somewhere in there. But I welcome my new friend, Bushi, to the show. And I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. So we talk about Buddhism and Jesus and how the two interplay. I would like to try to summarize it like I do sometimes, but that's, I don't think, going to be very possible for this one. I just don't, I don't think I can. Before we get started, though, please subscribe to the show. I always say rate and review. But hit the button to subscribe. That is one of the best things that you can do. That's how you can make sure you stay up to date. And when new episodes come out, you know, they just magically show up because that's how the internet works. You should do that in whatever app that pleases you the most. And so with that said, let's make this thing happen. Bushi Yamato Damashi. And if I didn't say that right, it's fine. Um, I guess it's fine anyway. Right. So, uh, terrified of, of names that I'm not used to saying. So welcome <laughs> to the show. I'm excited to talk to you. You came highly recommended from many, many friends of mine when I oh, said, wow. hey, I want to talk to people that are doing different things. And your name popped up seven or eight different times. So thank you for thank coming you on. Very, thank you very much. I'm honored. I always like to start off with a quick cursory of, you know, what are you, who are you, why are you kind of your upbringing and how that relates to how you do life now, like kind of just in brief that story, because I think it's good to set that context, because without context, not much else is there. I I agree. I was, uh, you know, so I was I was born in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, and um, I was a preacher's kid. My grandmother was a minister of the family. My, my mother would soon to follow, but not in the same capacity. Um, and my grandmother, who back in the um, you know, early 70s, I was born in 69, in the early 70s, she had established or helped to establish uh, a missionary Baptist church in our hometown. Um, and she had high hopes of uh, doing ministry, and so she put forth money to help to, to charter the church and uh, to establish the church. And the church, as of today, is doing very well. Uh, but I was raised up to be that kid to introduce my grandmother, and uh, you know, and and present her on stage while she presented the gospel, kind of trying to soften up the crowd, so to speak. <laughs> uh, difficult for women <laughs> in ministry. And uh, so various traits of ministry, various understandings of ministry, the church uh, just kind of naturally uh, imbued themselves upon me. And uh, late on in life, I decided to uh, pursue ministry myself. But because of my grandmother's teaching, she was quite uh, progressive in some respect. um, I always looked at uh, ministry, the church, the gospel from a different perspective. And uh, one would wonder what that perspective is, largely feminist. Uh, but uh, also from a very loving and accepting perspective, which I think was also a tenant of uh, my grandmother's pursuit of ministry, equality, 
um, sameness, uh, you know, compassion for all. And uh, at some point in pursuit of uh, ministry and in pursuit of uh, ministry, I realized there was something wrong. <laughs> there was something absolutely wrong uh, with not necessarily the gospel, but our interpretation of it. Hmm. And uh, this allowed me, uh, uh, encouraged me to pursue other religious thinking, uh, to surveil the parallels. And what I discovered uh, was that uh, within one of the most readily available uh, religious encounters that we can have, Buddhism, uh, lies a tremendous benefit to the believer in Christianity, and that is mindfulness. Uh, And so I began studying both, and I discovered that both Jesus and the Buddha had been pursuing the same thing. And that is uh, liberation uh, for human beings of their minds as well as their bodies. Uh, And in turn, you correct these two. Uh, If you treat these two well, then uh, it's a good possibility, very high possibility, that your neighboring community, your neighboring county, your state, your nation uh, may wind up being a bit more healthy. Hmm. So... Um, and out of those uh, understandings of both Buddhism and Christianity morphed uh, what I do now, which is considered Bodhi Christo, the awakened Christ. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in, in one way, you can say that uh, we are reliving the humanness of Christ with clear minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're examining our lives not only from um, a heavenly perspective, but also very earthbound perspective. Are components of our living here on earth, uh, such as our psychologists, mm-hmm. such as uh, our mannerisms, uh, those sorts of things. Um, so Bodhi Cristo is uh, designed to live out the tacit, the, the hands-on uh, you know, methods that Christ employed through the mindfulness of Buddha. There's a couple of things there I want to circle back to. What is a mm-hmm. feminine perspective of the gospel? You talked about you, you talked about that a bit. Like, what do you mean, feminine perspective? Yes. So you know, the gospel, largely throughout um, its history, especially here in this country, has been anti-women mm-hmm. in large part due to its translation or mistranslation of. Paul's teachings regarding men and women in the church. Uh, And so my grandmother, you know, wanted to, you know, naturally being a woman and having her her feelings and living on this earth and feeling everything that everybody else does, she wanted to make sure that, wait a minute, uh, you folks are not uh, speaking of Christ enough over here for us womankind. And uh, she wanted to reveal more of a loving Christ, the Christ who is not... uh, you know, not quite like his father, who was uh, a warmonger in some respects and stood up for those that he, you know, particularly cared for and not for those that he didn't, but more of a Christ image um, that was compassionate uh, across the board. And so from a feminist perspective, um, Christ is included completely in the gender roles of women. And she wanted to make sure that uh, men weren't missing that. If you can remember back, or maybe even to the culture that's in that church today, because you said it's still thriving. Oh, yes. What did that do to that congregation to have that view, that lens, you know, preach to youth that now are older? Like, how does, like, when you look at a traditional, quote unquote, church versus that, what are some of those differences? If someone's like, well, okay, but where does that ultimately lead? Right. Well, I can tell you this. Um, my grandmother, you know, had a large battle ahead of her, and it was a it was a steadily, increasingly, you know, fiery, you know, competition in the church. But and then particularly with the men folk. But what it did was it did liberate many of the women to uh, have have a voice, mm. to speak up, and to make the men uh, quite uncomfortable. <laughs> You know, and and so I think that in after, you know, Granny began doing what she was doing and she did it for a number of years uh, until she passed. But uh, she always spoke her truth and her truth resonated so much with other women's truth. And I think what happened is as a result of that, a concomitant result of that was many women uh, began to help establish policy in the church. They began to establish 
clearer lines of understanding and uh, also began culturally within the, within the institution itself to reinterpret many of its archaic viewpoints of, of women in the church by ordaining women in mm. the Baptist church, by allowing those women to speak from the same pulpit that the men spoke, and allowing those women to serve in positions of power, so to speak, such as uh, trustees and stewards, and then also to make executive changes. Um, so yeah. I think she did a, a tremendous job in saying, look, uh, we're not going to play this uh, <laughs> <laughs> game. God is bigger than that. Yeah, so not a Southern Baptist Convention church then. Definitely Absolutely. not. <laughs> um, you talked about delving into different religious views as you kind of wandered. Um, and there are many other interviews with you as you talk a bit about, you know, you were a pastor at one time, correct? Yeah. And and, yes, and, and cool. so I don't want to spend a lot of time there. Uh, I'd like right. to try to cover some new ground or learn some more sure. pieces about you. Sure. What are some of those other, or was it just you just jumped right from Christianity into kind of diving into Buddhism, or did you, did you kind of, eh, this isn't it? Yeah. Like, what yeah. does that look like? So for me, you know, I think roughly around the age of twelve, I began a more serious inquiry uh, of religion, if you can believe that or not. And I think it was because my grandmother was so adamant. My mother as well about learning. Um, when I was growing up in uh, the 70s, uh, just about every household had uh, Britannicas and uh, we had all of these learning mm -hmm. uh, materials and what have you. I haven't thought about Britannicas in forever. Oh my gosh, I haven't, forget, I haven't thought about those in a long time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And uh, I was one of those kids who my grandmother and my mother made sure, especially being a young black boy from uh, South Florida, you're going to learn. You're going to go to church and you're going to learn. And when you're not in church, you're going to be uh, in a book somewhere. Mm. And uh, I spent a lot of time learning. So I developed this understanding of other religions early on in life. And it was only in my, oh, pre-twenties, you know, maybe uh, 18, 19 years old, that I began a serious inquiry into Buddhism because of uh, personal anxiety and things of that sort. And they grew, they grew on me, you know. Buddhism led to uh, the studying of uh, yoga and uh, the, the beginning of the studying of Shiva and many other religions, Islam, you know, you, a wide gamut of uh, religions to be, to be examined. And I found so many commonalities. Um, and so after uh, a ministry experience, uh, before I went full on Buddhist, um, before that, I had already determined that uh, there needed to be, you know, some sort of unifying, some sort of interreligious unity to live out these tenets uh, that are found in all religions. It uh, didn't make much uh, to be Christian and broken and uh, recognizing that, uh, well, there's a big part of my healing over there in Buddhism, but mm. I can't do it because I'm, I'm Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt it necessary <laughs> to combine the two. It's like looking at the medicine, but don't open the bottle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I did. I, I, I began pursuing Buddhism from a very tacit perspective, uh, hands-on perspective, equal to what the Buddha did. Uh, the Buddha had studied for a long time with teachers, and then finally he just decided that uh, no longer do I need a teacher. I'm going to find this thing on my own. And uh, so that is that is exactly what I did. I asked um, intentionally today, um, mm -hmm. I asked roughly 10 people at random. I actually asked them at work. Um, so I work at a bank. And I just, hey, yeah. random question while you're in before you leave. When I say the word Buddhism, what do you think? Right. And the people not being able to see this video won't get this, but they all went just one of those like, yeah. ah. and yeah. there weren't many people that could really tell me, right? You know, but if I said Islam, they could tell me what they meant. Like if I sure. said Christian, they would, even if they sure. don't believe it, they would be able to right. say, that's what those people do. You know, Christians, yeah. they go out on Sunday and they don't tip. I'm just joking. That's right. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but for real, that's what they do. Um, so if you, if you were to, if you were to try to explain Buddhism to someone, um, and by someone I mean me, uh, yeah. what would you say? Like, yeah, what is Buddhism? And then 
more specifically, what is Zen Buddhism and how does it differ? Yeah, yeah. So Buddhism, uh, um, Buddhism is, I'll give it to you as, a, as one great uh, Zen master said, Buddhism is about recognizing that everything changes. Hmm. Everything changes. It is the cultivation of ultimate reality to oneself. And that ultimate reality is that uh, we will all change. And there is uh, no particular reason to hold on to any one notion uh, because that notion in and of itself or idea will change. The religion, the, the concept, the construct will change whether or not we are participating in its, uh, you know, its transmogrification or not. Uh, it's going to change. Um, and that's what Buddhism is largely based upon. Um, notions, thoughts, memories, history, trauma, all of those things, you know, they, they happen to us and we act those things out as if they're act, actually happening to us every moment of our lives. Hmm. Um, and so Buddhism is a teaching, a way of life, of, uh, a number of practices even, uh, a philosophy that teaches through various methods and portals um, through various teachings to recognize that the psychological constructs, even the emotional manifestations that we are experiencing as human beings, usually are stemming from one or two places, either from some sort of um, illusory past or some sort of traumatic past uh, experience, or we are reaching towards some sort of unmaterialized goal that is uh, stressing us out and uh, we have not attained it yet. And in both of those time spheres, both of those dimensions, um, we do a great deal of laboring about things that have come and gone. And we try to live those things out in the third period of time uh, that's, that's always transitory and moving about, and that is the present moment. Mm. <laughs> So I often say that we're all victims of the post-traumatic stress disorder of our parents. <laughs> and then we go off and live our lives. But here's the issue. We live our lives growing up in, uh, as human beings, going from decade to decade. And we vacillate from past to future and never live our lives in the present moment. Mm. Mm. In other words, so many people are so concerned about getting to heaven um, that they are not altruistic, they're not concerned about other people, and uh, they don't seem to be uh, greatly concerned about doing things to enhance other people's well-being on this planet. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, so concerned about where they're going instead of right, finding right. the kingdom of God that right. we are participating in and helping yeah. to create. Um, yeah. yeah, wholeheartedly agree. Also, yeah. you, you talk about the post-traumatic stress disorder of our parents. Makes me wonder what I'm doing to the children that sleep above me. Um, uh, when you, <laughs> so I don't, I have to think that you're familiar, although I do have another question about uh, specifically um, the difference between that philosophy and then specifically what Zen Buddhism is. Zen Buddhism, but, right. Um, are you familiar with, so you talked about paths of, you know, oppression based on trauma and then you talked about another one of, you know, just mm. a, like ascending to, I'm going to grasp sure. this because I feel motivated yeah. to do it. Uh, that reminds me of a conversation I've had with my pastor in the past about um, Richard Rohr has these two paths of, you know, yeah. you can fall upward or you can fall down or like an oppressive sure. path um, and then a subversive path. Um, right. does, are you familiar at all with that? Does that hold any truth to kind of what you're talking about or, or, or no? I think I'm understanding the concept. I'm not, uh, uh, familiar with that particular. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to badly paraphrase this. So it's like a, 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 cent, a central line that he would call your essence. And the goal mm -hmm. is that you're born that way and right. that you hopefully ascend or descend back to that central sure. line as you pass. Um, and as trauma happens, you either build an ego that uh, presses others down to elevate your own ego, yeah. and you every time that happens, you get further and further above and like narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, absolutely. And, or absolutely. you instead just go, yeah, of course, I was supposed to be beat down. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to speak out. And you just continue right. to submit right. and submit mm -hmm. and submit until you're mm -hmm. so far away to what you were actually created as. Right. That you, right. if that makes any sense. It does. It, it does. So in Zen Buddhism, uh, well, I will, I will begin by saying 
um, he's he's absolutely right. Um, we're all born with a natural uh, primordial state, and that primordial state is pure. We are already enlightened. We need not uh, pursue anything else. Hmm. Uh, it is a given. You come here enlightened, and then um, you know, then there's some some programming that's offered to you, some software that you upload, uh, and it is usually someone else's um, information. And uh, then you go on about living your life. Now, within that information that you're given are certain uh, prerequisites of behavior, prerequisites of uh, or suggested tendencies for behavior uh, or demonstrated uh, actions towards certain experiences that will prompt a behavior. And um, in that respect, he's absolutely right. We we vacillate back and forth because mm -hmm. we, you know, we kind of get away from our, our primordial primordial state. Zen is about uh, focusing completely on the primordial state. Um, one of the practices that we do here, uh, which is called Daishin Zen, is allowing yourself to kind of visually uh, imagine yourself standing above you know, yourself as if you're seated and uh, you're standing above yourself right behind you with your hands on your shoulders. And uh, this particular methodology that we use represents the primordial state. Uh, we are minds that are capable of doing. Uh, but unless you actually intentionalize uh, the doing or what is in the mind, uh, nothing will, will actually be done. No further karma will be added to you. So Daishin Zen is this way of uh, watching yourself, uh, observing yourself, being clear in the primordial moment, the natural moment, uh, the present moment, and as things materialize, uh, materialize around you, all you're doing is being an observer of those things. Um, you're, you're participating in the mere fact that you're observing awareness. This is, uh, in some respect, we consider Christ consciousness, mm -hmm. awareness, being mindful. Um, so in that respect, Zen, um, Zen urges us at all times to be in a meditative state, to always be observant of what you're doing and, uh, you know, paired against uh, or, or with or in association with the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the three gates, uh, speak only if it's necessary, true or kind. Um, do we have the three gates? Yes. Is, is, it, is it necessary? Is it true? And is it kind? And that is the basis for how one lives as a Daishin Zen practitioner. Um, is it necessary? Do you even need to open your mouth? You know, do you need to have an opinion on certain <laughs> things? You know, is it, uh, is it true? You know, is it true? We are so often, as uh, uh, Father Roy points out, you know, we take sometimes a submissive role uh, in society, and we do that under pressure. Uh, sometimes when pressure is a bit, human pressure is a bit too much for us, like someone asking us a question or, or asking us to be vulnerable, we will lie or we will take a, a, a lesser grandeur stance on that. So, you know, is it true? And if it is not, then refrain from speaking until you uh, you practice being honest with yourself. Hmm. So, and then is it kind? Is it is it truly kind? Here in the South, we have this uh, this kind of mannerism where people are uh, always smiling at each other, but deep down within, there is uh, there's this ambivalence or this apathy <laughs> with each other. Uh, oh, bless your heart, uh -huh. <laughs> those sorts of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So. Uh, Daishin Zen suggests that, uh, you know, if it is not kind and it is not genuinely kind, if it is not genuinely true, if it is not genuinely necessary, then do not engage or entangle yourself in the affairs of falsehood. Um, so that is um, that is the methodology uh, of maintaining this primordial state that uh, Father Roy talks about yeah. and that I think Buddha and the Jesus encouraged us to remain in. Yeah, I like those three gates. Um, yeah, yeah. I find myself thinking, how do those three? How can I apply those three gates to social media? Um, because yeah. <laughs> I'll type, 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 and then just delete, save as drafts. No, I better not. I better not, because I'll yeah. pull it back out yeah. and and do it again. Um, <laughs> I better not.
so what are some of the other so zen buddhism is just one form so are there others and, and can you speak to that at all or oh, is yeah. is like what what are the differences sure buddhism is you know a cultural manifestation it is it was born out of uh india mm-hmm. uh, siddhartha gotama who was a prince who later would uh, uh abandon all formal pursuits of gaining enlightenment through teachers and uh, masters and gurus and all of those pursuits to seek enlightenment himself. And what he discovered was, wow, um, he himself could uh, be brought back to the natural state of uh, all is well, all is good, and all of this stuff going on around me, it's unchanging. He brought himself uh, to enlightenment. And many others came after him. He had many students, and they would later take those teachings and uh, separate them, kind of uh, uh, divide them up in various teachings and use those as cultural guides or norms um, to teach the Buddha Dharma. One of the uh, schools, the oldest school of Buddhism, is called uh, Theravada. Um, And it is uh, generally characterized by the original um, teachings of the Buddha from when the Buddha was here on uh, on on Earth uh, as a living human being, mm-hmm. and they are generally characterized. The monks are characterized by um, uh, refraining from any sexual activity. They're very abstinent. Um, they have a certain diet that they eat, and they're generally marked by orange robes um, and uh, largely of Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And that's largely because when Bodhidharma, the 12th century monk and founder of Zen Buddhism, uh, traveled from Korea, from Tibet to Korea and later China and Japan, um, he shared the Buddha Dharma there and they adopted it and it became a part of their cultural cultural anomaly. Uh, One of the other schools, so it is uh, Theravadan Buddhism is called the oldest school uh, in the schools of Buddhism. And then there is the Mahayana. Mahayana Buddhism is more so Tibetan Buddhism, uh, some schools of Zen Buddhism, but Mahayana is called the uh, the lesser vehicle because it allows certain certain teachings to be expounded upon, uh, more so, I think, in the monastic or the followers' individual life. Um, So we're not bound by, in many cases, some of the more stricter rules of Theravadan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to think Mahayana Buddhism is more uh, individual or family oriented, I guess. Okay. Uh, you know, the practice is around your community. The practice is more so around um, the things that you do every single day, not just being caught in the monastery, but uh, the things you do every day. Hmm. And then Zen Buddhism is, um, is a part of a school, a part of the school of Mahayana Buddhism. However, Zen focuses on particularly emptiness, the emptiness of all things. Um, We place so much emphasis on importance, you know, spiritual materialism, you know, those sorts of things, gain, wealth, acquiring. Um, And Zen Buddhism teaches from a very dire perspective that all things are empty. All things are empty, a piece of gold or a ring or a diamond left unattended for uh, a number of time, a number of years, you know, will become tarnished. And uh, it will need some cleaning up. It will need some uh, some adjusting uh, in order to return to its full luster. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Zen Buddhism focuses on that particular aspect. There are things about you: there are post-traumatic stress disorders of your parents, of racism, of living in the country, of your job, of uh, <laughs> you know, of even what you've been told of yourself before you even knew yourself. Zen Buddhism encourages uh, really get to know whom you are and shed the dross, shed the outer layers of all of the sensationalism of the delusions that, uh, you know, uh, propagate for your mind. So when you say emptying, I think that's what you said was emptying. Yes. Why? I I don't want to say this. Um... So I often, no, I don't know how to say this. Um, I'm struggling. So what I'm finding is I, I struggle when I'm talking with people of other faiths, which is actually stretching me quite a bit. I don't have the same 
common foundational nomenclature to fall back on. And so right. often I, I struggle to, I struggle to put questions together. Yeah. Why does it matter? Like, like when I hear emptying, I hear that I'm like abandoning things. If that makes yeah. sense. Like I'm in a, yeah. like, like just literally just checking out and yeah. almost like, because I, th I think things have value. And sure. so, but I also can see the, the draw of not being right. addicted to that value. So right. how does that work? Like how does one begin that process? And I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Oh, you, 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 believe it or not, you're doing a wonderful <laughs> job. <laughs> Fantastic. Some of, you know, some of the questions that people normally pose to me, I have to think about because I'm not exactly sure what they're saying, but you, you're very clear. Okay. Uh, if you consider, and I'll try to do this in a very allegorical perspective, uh, but be as clear as I possibly can. Um, if you consider a flower, you know, one single rose, the rose in and of itself is uh, made of many things. Mm -hmm. It is comprised of sunlight and it has some, uh, some interaction during its development uh, with bugs, rain, wind, all of those sorts of things, soil. So when we look at the full completion of what a flower is, we are fascinated by its beauty. We are overwhelmed by what it now, in its completed stasis, uh, will further provide for us a bouquet of flowers, you know, some sort of uh, way of uh, enlightening or, or enlivening one's visual day to kind of stimulate the mind, you know, for whatever case it may be. Uh, but when the rose continues on, it's in, in its stasis or in its, uh, its transformation, it will die. And notice when the flower dies, what happens to our minds? Our minds immediately go back to, well, it is, uh, it's worthless now. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to change it out. I have to do something else in order to sustain this. Yeah, uh, prune it sometimes off. We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so emptiness is the practice of understanding this beautiful manifestation that you are looking at, this beautiful uh, piece of earthbound work that uh, you had very little to to do with it coming up, you know, um, in its original form was not this way. And that in its original form, it's made of other components that we would not value as much as we value its completed form. So Zen is about recognizing, oh, this is a beautiful flower, but there's much, much more that went into it. Uh, to make it such and to be aware of those things that uh, contributed to this, uh, this, this manifestation. So emptiness is about understanding that, oh, yes, money is, money is um, you know, very useful and it can help a lot of people. But in the end, um, we should, you know, look at money as, uh, you know, it can, it can be useful, it can be helpful, but it, in many cases, is not the determining factor for happiness. Um, and when we censor our, you know, understanding uh, that these things are, you know, not worth what we're putting into them, we, when we censor that, then we go full bore into attainment mode. Many of us have attained um, egohood. Mm -hmm and not enlightenment through our misunderstanding of our relationship to, to all things. We've attained egohood. My shoes are more important. Uh, my spot in the line in traffic is more important than you should <laughs> cut me off. You know, <laughs> those I, sorts of I things. struggle with that. I've got a 40 minute drive to work and some days I'm like, what's, what's wrong with you? Yeah. It's a yield sign. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Well, what's worse is we, uh, you know, I think it's, we had someone who visited. She said, uh, you know, on Sundays, I, I'm supposed to be holy, but I get so upset because people are keeping me from church. And, <laughs> and uh, I said, wow, yeah, maybe, maybe you should come here on Sundays a bit more. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to dive into Sunday. So you used a word earlier, Bodhi Cristo. Um, yes. And I forget what you said. That means something Christ. And I don't. I, yes, I, it's awakened Christ. Yeah. So yeah. what in the world is that? Like, what is yeah, that? Yeah. So Bodhi Christo, I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Bodhi Christo is uh, the path. I have, I've termed it such um, simply because 
in the years that I've been a monk and the years that I've been um, doing this work and this meditative uh, practice, I've discovered that both Jesus and the Buddha, um, had they uh, existed at the same time, uh, they would have probably gotten along very well. Um, and I think that is because Jesus is often referred to as the son of God, but there's, there's something else he's often called, and that is the son of man. Mm. Um, I think it is the man side, the human side of Jesus that uh, we are so undereducated in as a human society, that we are so undereducated in and misinformed about as a Christian society, um, that it warrants you know, us investigating simply because uh, without understanding his human side, I don't believe that we will ever understand his divine side. What I mean by that is there are certain, um, there are certain things, there are certain actions that are represented in scripture that are very clear um, of Jesus's belief of other human beings. For example, Jesus was noted to go and sit next to a woman who was, um, you know, uh, considered not to be a holy person, or um, and it was against the rule for men to sit with women and uh, talk with them if uh, they were in entrolled or uh, if they were married or, or whatever. And Jesus broke those rules to connect to human beings. He, he understood that human beings need love and association. Um, and he dared to do that with his divinity. He uh, even celebrated uh, human beings because he was a human being during their most uh, culturally festive time. Mm -hmm. When the wine was no longer uh, sufficient, he created more harmonious uh, community by Jesus was very aware of the human manifestation of our being here on earth, and he tended to that. He said a lot of things that were very mystical, but what he did do was he did not hold himself up to be this high person, and he was capable of walking the earth in his bare shoes and sandals and touching people right where they were. Mm -hmm. Cristo is that manifestation of doing what Christ did, but doing it firstly from a very awakened perspective. You see, I believe that uh, what many of us have done throughout the course of history is we've acted out these uh, these Jesus uh, beliefs, but we have not included the, the, the true nature of ourselves in it. Um, and this is, uh, we've not nurtured the human side. We've, uh, we know how to get people to heaven and know how to tell them how they're going to hell. But as far as uh, helping people to overcome uh, self-doubt, uh, helping people to overcome, you know, a lack of uh, feeling connected to other human beings. Uh, you know, some people have traumas that they're having a difficult time living with and prayer alone is not enough. Um, so I think Jesus uh, would have demonstrated, as he did through the, the, the narratives, you know, a human connection. Get next to those people, talk to those people, be willing to have town hall with those people and uh, nurture them right where they are. Um, I often have said in a number of interviews and lectures and talks that I give all across this, uh, this great country, that I think in large part, we have failed as a Christian society because we have not been human. Mm. Mm. We have tried so desperately to be divine that we have left behind the very um, source uh, of whom we are, you see. And, uh, you know, so Bodhicristo is the manifestation of a Buddhist monk who deeply believes in the narratives and the actions of Jesus. Um, and from an enlightened or awakened perspective, uh, who lives that out. I live my life out as a person who firstly focuses on me. And for whatever time that takes uh, for me to sort out my stuff, to be clear, to let go of some things and come to a greater understanding. I take that time so that when I do set forth out into the world and put my hands to other people's hands, they are a little cleaner than they were before uh, I put my hand to theirs. And so yeah. Bodhicristo, firstly, is about becoming the Buddha that you naturally are.
and then through the patterning of what has already been established in this country, Christ, um, the Christ narrative, living that out um, in one's life and in society. Yes. I have two more questions, actually. Well, maybe two, maybe, maybe 20. We'll see where it goes. That's quite all right. <laughs> I have found when I speak to people that are Buddhists, um, which oddly enough takes a bit of time to get out of people. Like as I meet people, it's, it doesn't seem to be the Buddhists I've spoken with. They don't just come out like they don't proselytize in the way right. that, that Christians do, which I yeah. appreciate because I'm like, I don't I just want to talk about God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I and, and we can call that whatever you want to talk about. I'm going to learn yeah. something today. That's right. I think if anybody in a church went and then they came to uh, your centers, the Thomasville Buddhist Center, yeah. yeah, that they would be welcomed by everyone present. But I oh, don't absolutely. know if someone showed up dressed in robes, like as a Buddhist monk, if they would immediately not be welcome at at most churches. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious how how do you think that should look? Like how can it has to be reciprocal. How can that yeah. work better? Like, what would what would you say? I, I'm actually working with a number of Buddhists, uh, Buddhist lamas, uh, Buddhist teachers uh, from traditional lineages all across the globe. We're working together right now, and uh, this has been going on for some time. Many people have not known of this, but uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing is we're working to make this uh, this material, uh, this uh, this a manifestation of Buddhists who understand the need, first of all, for recognizing the Christ figure of history, and then also for Christians to recognize the Buddhist uh, image and narrative um, of history. And, you know, I, I think we're working together because we simply understand that Buddhists have been so isolated towards the monastery, towards sending out goodwill and compassion and things of that, nature, but never really having any tacit knowledge. Uh, and what I mean by that is actually putting their feet, uh, the rubber to the road. And uh, in many cases, uh, Christians have a great deal of uh, talk about compassion and love and kindness and things of that sort. But uh, Talk being the key word there. Right. But never really fully understanding what that looks like within themselves. Um, we talk about forgiveness, but we don't know how to forgive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Buddhists and Christians coming together can certainly, and I know it's somewhat of a, a morphing process. It's a, it's a uh, transmogrification that's kind of difficult to, to understand, but not quite so. The Good Samaritan, you know, took away from his day to just simply recognize another human being who was in distress. And uh, with or without any knowledge, he, he participated. I always say that um, comprehension is not a requisite for cooperation. Mm. And so these are things that I think together as Christians and Buddhists, we can, we can benefit from learning of each other. We could, we could benefit um, as Buddhists learning um, to take our teachings into of, of emptiness into a very materialistic world within the Christian society. I think we can benefit people and people can benefit uh, us as well. You see? Yes. I do want to ask kind of how you think that looks like with faiths that aren't Christian based, like Islamic um, and, and other faiths as well. But for some reason, there's a nagging question in the back of my head. So when I think about Christ and you know living water you don't thirst anymore. That seems to be the opposite of emptying. Um, ah, so mm. can you talk a bit about that? Cause it's been yeah. nagging me for about 20 minutes now. Um, and I yeah. finally figured out how to say it. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, most people do is they, you know, they miss, they misunderstand, um, because there isn't, there isn't depth, you know, so emptiness, you know, if you are empty, then how big are you? How vast are you? Mm. How limited are you? Um, how extraordinary are you? So when Christ talks about this, this overflowing, never running out uh, stream of water full of richness that we, we can all benefit from, and it's therefore eternally everlasting, uh, the Buddhist concept uh, of emptiness is the same teaching. You see, Christ indicated that he is a well um, that will never run dry simply because he is rooted 
not in the things that uh, plague our minds. He is not rooted in the societal norms and understanding of what life really is, you know, and, and the Buddha made that perfectly clear as well. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what problems do we have in life as human beings? And we can give a myriad of answers, mm -hmm. but uh, there is only but one problem that each and, of, each and every one of us have. Uh, and that is life is not happening the way that you want it to. Hmm. And so Christ says, if you live this very simple way, without reaching and grasping for anything, you have to recognize, Christ said, oh, if you even want eternal life, you've got to give it all up. You have to be empty. You have to release. You have to let go. You have to go back to that very primordial state to decontaminate yourself from the things that uh, plague your mind to make you think uh, that uh, these are more important. So emptiness is of the same thing. Em emptiness is the same as uh, Christ's teaching of abandoning your riches. Yeah, it's the same concept. If you know, Daishin means big mind in, in Japanese culture. It means big mind. And it's not in terms of uh, uh, capacity. It's in terms of uh, emptiness. If the universe uh, had 21 different locations, verifiable locations, only 20, 21 verifiable locations in the universe, and we could go to them, then everyone would have this common knowledge that, well, there's, there's only 21 locations <laughs> you know, that we can go to. But now, as we discover, the universe is vast. And so now to limit the universe to only 21, just because we see 21, uh, limits our perception, limits our ability to go beyond, you see. So does that help you a bit? Yeah, it does. Especially that last bit of, you know, just because I see 21, it's only 21. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, exactly. So I want to end with, with this question. So people are listening and, and then just so you kind of know, I plan and I'm, I'm actually really struggling with it, but I, this is the plan. I want to speak with as many other faith traditions or other yes. thoughts as possible um, yes. because I think it's important to learn how to do that better, um, and maybe we'll all Absolutely. learn a little bit together because yeah. I, I don't even know what I don't know uh, to borrow right. something from Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> like I just I literally struggle with things. Um, so, yes, I've reached out with so many other different faiths, and so yes. far those are coming. I don't know how long it'll be or how many different faiths I'll talk with, but whatever. Well, hopefully many. Hopefully you'll get a chance. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so where would you point people to as they want to, to dive into some of these concepts, uh, to learn a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, you talked about, you know, religious practice of contemplation and liberation and so yeah. many different things that we've talked about. So where would you say, hey, if you were going to start in one or two spots with intentionality, you know, drill yeah. here, this is where yeah. you want to drill. I, I would suggest, uh, you know, all of my students across the globe are suggested uh, reading materials and we study together and I'm very intimate with all of them. Uh, we spend time equal as to what we're doing here, um, communicating and practicing together. But one of the one of the foundational tools that I use in order to to help uh, students to understand Buddhism, whether they be Christian or otherwise. Uh, many of my students are not Buddhist. Many of them are Christian. Many of them are, are Hindu uh, and from various religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. There's a particular book uh, called Buddhism, uh, Plain and Simple, by uh, my good friend Steve Hagen. And uh, it's called Buddhism, Plain and Simple uh, by Steve Hagen. And in this particular book, uh, it's written from a lay perspective. Steve outlines, you know, what, what Buddhism is, and it talks to the individual directly. He's very, very poignant in talking about uh, what Buddhism is, the beginning of it, how you approach this, and then also the similarities of uh, other, other thoughts as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so that particular book, uh, Buddhism Plain and Simple by Steve Hagen, is uh, a, a great resource. Perfect. And you can, you can, I, you know, I've had people who, uh, have read that book and reread it and reread it uh, because it is so insightful, especially for the Westerner. Uh, here in the West, we have a concept even of meditation, uh, that meditation is, you know, getting to this blissful state and, and all things just kind of disappear from your mind. That is not the case. Um, as we've discovered in, in Buddhism, true Buddhism, 
meditation is allowing the madness of your mind to reveal itself while you sit quietly and let it act, let it allow itself to act it out. Mm. That is what meditation is. Because if you cannot see the things that plague you, then you will never know exactly how to deal with it. I've, um, I've practiced that through uh, different forms of prayer down here in the basement, about uh, 10 feet to my right here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, met a, I read a book. I read a lot of books, but I read a book about a year and a half ago from, um, oh, the name escapes me now, but it's about truth, prayer, and identity. And so he has a concept of there of just being quiet and yeah. just being still and listening until all you can hear is the silence um, right. and, and like literally can hear the fibers yeah, of the carpet right. that you're sitting on. Absolutely. And, and then you can actually focus your attention sure. on something that, that matters. And I'm not saying that well. Um, he said it so much better. James Danaher, that's his <laughs> name. James Danaher, um, Truth, Prayer, right. and Identity. That's the name of that book. I can't cheat. I don't actually have it bound uh, I had a I had a loose copy, so I can't I can't just look at my at my books up here. You got to get your notes together. There. Yeah, well, they're back in it's in the back of the brain in there somewhere. So I do have another question: Why the Japan? This has nothing to do with the episode, but why the Japanese verbiage? Because like Yamato Damashi, doesn't that mean like warrior something or other? Yes. Like, like uh, why why that? Yeah. So from the time I was eleven years old, I've been a martial artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm still a practicing ah. martial artist today. Okay. Uh, Japanese martial arts, Aikido, Daituru, Aikijujitsu, she- Seshiroru. Um, I don't even know what those words are. Those black- aren't even real words. I don't even yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I have black belts in all of these arts. And uh, so when I, I decided to uh, uh, become a more serious practitioner, my teacher suggested um, a name for me to go into meditation with. And that was uh, Warrior of the Ancient Japanese Spirit, mm. Bushi Yamato Damashi. And that name was given to me because, uh, you know, just like most of us who receive Dharma names, there was something within me that he intended to see me live out. And that is to be a warrior towards my own life circumstances. And to do that um, through the spirit and the energy of the practice that I had already cultivated, mm-hmm. which is a mastery of se- several martial arts. You yeah. do that now with your mind. Huh. Uh, so I was given that name for that particular reason. Huh. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So you become, you become the samurai of your own mind, and then uh, you can see clearly where not to cut other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, yeah, I like that. Uh, one other question. So when I Googled you, it mm-hmm. appears that there was a book that somebody said you were writing that maybe oh. out November of last year, <laughs> but I can't find it. So yeah, it's actually, it? you know, we, it, it has not been released yet. We're still working this, uh, you know, as we're discovering, um, as this work is unfolding, more and more people are grabbing at this concept, uh, grabbing at the notion that there is a, you know, there's a Buddhist Christian, you know, somewhere in the world. And it's uh, so the book is uh, taken a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, more time to to come about, but we are still working on it. Um, and hopefully by July of this year, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be able to say, "All right, it's it's done." Uh, I've been talking with some some of my uh, my colleagues who are helping me with this, and uh, hopefully by July. That sounds hopefully. good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if not, then, you know, maybe Christmas. It'll be a great Christmas present. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I know how Google works, and I can't find this thing, but it is referenced. Where is it? So, yeah, and yeah. you had what you had. Uh, you you and I were talking about God earlier. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, I totally forgot. I'm gonna edit this back in. Oh man, yeah. I'm glad. Thank you so much for reminding me. Right, so right. when you, yeah, I got sidetracked. Um, <laughs> one of the questions I'm asking everyone is that because. And that's why I wanted to set context at the beginning of kind of your story. I yeah. think where people come from matters for this answer. Um, yeah. And as I talk to people of other faiths, other cultures, yeah, it's just different. So it's when you different. say the word God or divine or whatever metaphor you want to say, yeah. what do you like? What do you mean? What, what do, do I you, mean? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, and I have to say, Seth, this is the first time anyone has ever asked me that question. No. Oh. Um, usually this particular question is answered within my inner circle so as to not cause controversy because I, you know, um, some people may not understand, but uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, given enough uh, patience and tolerance, 
it's a, it's a really good ancestor. <laughs> to what I mean. So I grew up understanding that God was in the clouds, uh, mm-hmm. or beyond the clouds, uh, mm-hmm. from a very elementary perspective. And then later, I matriculated to to know uh, or to believe that God was this being uh, who was supreme over all things, watching all things, in all things, uh, all manifestations of human life and in the earth. And uh, that God had a tendency of acting on the behalf of human beings, uh, 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 acting against them. God had certain rules. This uh, being had certain tenets that he wanted us to follow. And uh, as I developed uh, as a human being and grew up, I came to realize that with all of the God talk, you know, Phyllis Tickle once wrote a book called God Talk in America. Um, with all of this God talk, it's becoming quite difficult to feel God in my human flesh uh, simply because other human beings don't carry the same image that I have. Mm. So when we talk about God, God is uh, many in many cases relegated to a Sunday morning phenomena, um, a person or deity or or construct to rely on, um, you know, a counterpart in struggle to cast your woes upon, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and that anything you need as a human being, you know, God gives you these things. Like as if you can't, uh, you can't work on patience yourself, you have to rely on God. Mm-hmm. You can't work on courage yourself, you mm-hmm. have to rely on God. You can't work on peace you have to rely on God. And uh, living in the flesh, you see, my hide could not uh, agree uh, with many of the sentiments that were taught to us in the church about God, God's attributes, those sorts of things. And what I later discovered was that if we're going to talk about God, then I think we have to be involved in that process. Um, so when I speak of God, I speak of the ultimate good of our greatest human endeavors, the greatest good and whatever that is, God would look like uh, you're feeling bad, you, you know, spontaneously lift yourself because of some notion uh, that you are truly already enlightened. Uh, God looks like uh, someone who breaks away from the norm of apathy to spontaneously do something kind for someone else. Hmm. God looks like, you know, uh, someone uh, taking time out of their day to forthrightly and as an individual um, set aside their worries and go cast uh, some concern somewhere else with someone else's issues. You know? So God is about connecting with human beings in all of the enterprise of humanity, the suffering, the triumphs, all of those things. And when we speak of God, those should be the the narratives that we sell to ourselves, that we offer our own psychologies um, regarding what we're speaking about. So, you know, God is God is bigger than anything that we've ever done on the planet. Mm. And if the condition of the planet is any indication of how well we've done with God, then uh, you know my definition of God is much bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. I love that. I love thank that. you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for reminding me. But yeah, you caught me, on, you caught me on the cuff, so I had to try, but I did remember. <laughs> you know, uh, well, thank you for refocusing me. I totally forgot. Yeah. I would have. I would have kicked myself. Matter of fact, I probably would have called you again and hit record again. <laughs> like we still have <laughs> to do this because I can't. I've done. I've done every single week now. I can't miss one. I can't miss yeah. one. I did. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed this, and um, I have as well, Sam. Yeah, good. Thank you so much, Bushi. I've I've really enjoyed this. You're very welcome. I have so many other questions, but yeah, thank thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You're you're welcome. And if anyone would like to uh, continue to reach out to me or to follow me, uh, they can do so at a n- number of portals. Uh, Bushi's Peace dot us, uh, b u s h i s p e a c e dot us. Uh, and then you can just type in uh, Bushti on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, and they can they can locate me there.
show is 100% a free podcast. However, there are some beautiful people that make the show work. Those are the patrons of the show. You should be one. Click the link in the show notes. As little as three bucks a month can help the show continue to grow and sustain and honestly do some things. My goal is to have 100 patrons over the next few months. And so if you would be willing to do that, click the button. I will try my best to make it worth your while. However, since last recording, there's something new that I want to start doing because I get really excited every single time someone joins a patron community. And so that happened to new people over the weekend. And so thank you so much to Chris Harmon and to Matt Tipton for your support. Special thanks again to the Salt of the Sound as I continue to work through the back catalog of transcriptions, the ability to use their music on an ongoing way. I can't tell you how much stress that relieves. And those are almost done. I think I'm almost up to episode 60, so I think I only have 24 something left. I hope that you know how blessed you are, how beloved you are, and I'll talk with you next week.